Hello and welcome to another episode of the Friday Tech Roundup Roundup. We will be looking at the news from the week commencing 20th September. We've got breach, we've got a renewable energy, AI regulations, the race to zero, some really cool stuff. So stick with us um, as we run through the top five pieces of tech news that came in this week. Oh yeah, sorry, I'm Ellie and we've also got Tebs here as well. <laughs> Damn it, I knew I forgot something. There we go. Um, so number one, new cross hospital in Wolverhampton plans to run entirely on renewable energy after the green light given to Solar Farm. They will become the first ever hospital to try this. An analysis from the Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust reckons the move could save 15 to 20 million over the next 20 years, money which will be put back into frontline healthcare. Sounds pretty cool. Very cool. Very cool, but I um I went off down one of my rabbit holes. The things that really excited me were the use of uh, it seems like a really good use of brownfield sites. Yeah, um, yeah, so, yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of housing developers and um, you know commercial uh, developers are really reluctant to clean up brownfield sites because there's a lot of cost involved in that, and presumably they were never involved in creating the contamination in other brownfield sites. So they just kind of sit there going, what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, and this is uh, an option that doesn't require anywhere as much decontamination and actually therefore would be a brilliant option in some of the more deprived areas of the country that have got brownfield sites because electricity is great. You can ship it anywhere. Yep. Um, good high-tech jobs, you know. So, yeah, I thought it was a, a really clever model. And then I went off down another rabbit hole about new storage technologies because, you know, batteries are very bad for the environment generally. Yeah. So I was looking at, you know, I knew about things like pumped hydro and stuff, but looking at some of the new ones around liquid air, really interesting UK startup doing that. Oh, right. um, just how to convert the energy into something that you can release later when you need it. Yeah. Um, some great stuff, underground compressed air, flow batteries, bit, bit ropey, stacked block, mm. which was interesting. Yeah. But yeah, pumped hydro has been popular for years. Yeah. So yeah, I thought it was a great story, really interesting use of brownfield sites. Slightly annoyed we're still in a place where we're not asking the people who originally constructed buildings or ran the firms to decontaminate those brownfield sites but such yeah. is such is the world um and this looked like a really good use of that and I'm, I'm i'm always really interested now we can see these um challenges that previous generations of companies have created being sort of embraced as opportunities by today's companies this looked great yeah no, and I think you've hit the nail on the head there. And it's not, we're not talking about a small pot of land. This particular mm. site is the size of 21 football pitches. And I think mm. people underestimate how large these brown sites are and actually what a waste it is that they're being left yeah. with no investment put into them because you said the toxic, toxicity of it or the fact that you can't build additional houses on it, et cetera. Mm. So it just often just get left to yeah. get even worse. So it's quite nice that somebody's come along and gone, actually, let's do something with this. It's going to benefit. And again, the hospitals... They're obviously going to make sure anytime there's the grid uh, set up. So if power goes out from their own supply, they've obviously got that um, as a backup. But it's just great to see a hospital taking this on. Um, mm. Show you again the next step in med tech, but also the fact that hopefully it helps encourage other people around the world to um, follow in their footsteps and start cutting emissions in a different way. Yeah, I really enjoyed um, that. That was quite resonant, really, the idea that they, the council were trying to figure out how to do it and then realised that the hospital had a funding route to do it and put right. it all together. Yes. You know, we, um, 
you know, one of the things I really enjoy doing about my job is looking across partners and customers and even putting different customers together um, who've got similar challenges or complementary needs and building really cool solutions from that. It's like you, you spend your spend so much of your time talking to people about what they're doing what their challenges are where they're going but it's nice to have that stuff on hand i think that really is the way forward is like um sort of friendly competition um where you can put partners who might at first glance be competitors together to build a more compelling solution and similarly you know for over a decade now i've worked in in organizations where off the record peers will be having conversations with their competitors about how they dealt with particular challenges. And it, it, it really makes for a better experience for customers and the organization. So yeah, watching that kind of stuff, that the power of networking and being curious about what else is going on in your environment. Yeah, it was really interesting, very heartening. Perfect. No, completely agree. Great. Um, number two, despite the Almost universal acknowledgement of the need to support hybrid working, employers are failing to invest in technology to maintain productivity across their remote workforce. This is despite concerns about their output um, and is according to research released by Rico Europe. Uh, These findings came off the back of research released in August 2021, which found that two thirds of employers don't fully trust their employees to work remotely and that many UK organisations are considering their return to work policies, suggesting that the pandemic has eroded confidence in a remote workforce, which is completely the opposite to what I thought research from the pandemic would show. I thought that would be like the perfect opportunity to kind of prove that work could be done from a distance. Well, I think there's an interesting distinction, isn't there? Because it's like, you know, the work got done at the end of the day. Mm. If you watch very realistic Hollywood films like Contagion and stuff, um, which, you know, was great, actually. It really calmed me down when I first watched it. I'm pretty sure I saw that on my birthday, and I was like, why are we watching this? Surely there's a Disney film we could be watching right now. Yeah, but uh, a very realistic simulation, but... um, there was no storyline in that about keeping Salesforce up to date or ensuring that the shipping of clothes went out for internet orders or, you know, could you get your takeaway delivered? The yeah. reality is we, we we went through a once-in-a-century pandemic and pretty much, with only a few exceptions, 7 billion people stepped up to the mark. And there are a few business leader saying can I trust my staff I saw a really interesting interview the other day with um, the chief executive of HSBC and he specifically made the point that he's a fan of hybrid working because having trusted his staff with very few exceptions to work from home over the last 18 months and seeing what they've achieved how could he not trust them to continue yep and I, I, I think this model of a certain number of employers, two thirds, not trusting their staff. It's, it's really more of a damning indictment about them. Uh, this is the thing. I was yeah. interested about this particular research. It suggests that like a third of employee, employers say the organisation have provided the tools and technology to maintain employee productivity while working from any location. So it kind of feels you're setting your staff up to fail. Indeed. Yeah, that, 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 that was where I was slightly sceptical because we see this problem a lot, albeit in a different sphere, where the answer is always tools and technology. And mm-hmm. they are important, but they've got to go hand in hand with culture and process. Absolutely, um, yeah. And I, th- I think the, the sort of 
inherent distrust of these particular employees, employers who were surveyed of their staff in that environment, um, coupled with the lack of tools and technology is not going to make the situation any better. We're very lucky to work in an organization that's embraced hybrid. For many years, I had uh, a much better gender balance in my teams, quite substantial teams, you know, like three, 400 people on occasion. Um, because I was happy to have people working from home and that unlocked whole demographics of employees that we could take on. Yeah. Um, but the very clear line that I had with people was you could be in the office five days a week. If the work isn't getting done, that will be problematic. So yeah. I don't care if you're working from home. Yeah. And we, we embraced that for the last 18 months. And, and now it's suddenly a problem. And I think it harks back to quite a, an old fashioned uh, approach, which is if I can't see you looking busy, then... Yeah. You know, you're 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 not working. And it frankly, it's quite sad. And particularly in the time of resource shortage, you know, yeah. those kinds of employers, good luck. But also, you know, you, you quite rightly just dropped onto a phrase there of looking busy. And actually something of the report came out that employees felt that actually some of the tasks they were being given was just busy work. <laughs> yeah. You know, actually value add, you know, and I think if an employer is expecting you to sit there and all day, every day walk over and make sure, I don't know, for me, it's a Word document, for somebody else it would be a code base. Um, so you're constantly seeing that on screen. Whereas actually I spent most of this week researching micro front ends because I was doing an award submission. So yeah. and that actually took a lot of groundwork yeah. research just to make sure that it could go out in the position and the quality that it should have been. And actually, had you walked past my screen at any point, I was listening to podcasts, I was listening to like reading blogs, watching videos, asking questions. I sat with my colleague for a little bit over the week. And that's real work. That's where the value comes from it. So it's really interesting, again, like, what is it that they're hoping to see? Mm. And again, the fact that if you're not investing in your people with the tools that they need to to have to actually work effectively from home, well, then actually you're kind of making this more of a problem you're making the problem like you know yeah. there are solutions out there to make this easier for everyone yeah um, i mean there's a whole conversation as well about where you know <clears throat> that 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 mismatch about you know the the employers thinking staff were doing about i think it was 180 minutes a day of productive work and staff themselves said something like 76 minutes <laughs> um and it's and it's interesting to me because i think i think Beyond that, there's often a mismatch in what the employers think is productive work and what the employees think is productive work. So a classic example would be we we did a piece of work for a client once where one of the things that we did that really speeded up um, increased capacity for the uh, developers we were working with was automating the production and release notes. Um, now, that is fairly vital work. and I'm sure an employer would say creating them is fairly vital. But mm. from the point of view of the developers and engineers who are creating them, they were like, yes, but the process of creating them is meaningless. You know, And we, we went through and automated big chunks of that so that they were only putting the time in on the bits that actually needed their effort. And the mm. rest of it was being automated, then was checked, and then was sent out. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that there are... There's a real unwillingness amongst um, some organisations to listen to their employees about um, where journeys can be leaned, what customers actually need, what is productive and adds value. Yeah. Um, and you see it done well with, you know, our sister company method, do some great work around customer journey mapping. But within that, there's also colleague journey mapping in terms yeah. of how to really optimise the work that you're doing. Um, 
And at the end of the day, pretty much every organization has the knowledge for how to improve things within their organization. Yeah. Not listening to the people who do the work and can tell them. Um, so, you know, it's very easy and they can be very frustrating to get to get annoyed with concepts like workers' councils and stuff that you see in Europe. Yeah. It's very difficult to argue with the fact that they kick us up and down the street on productivity. So, you know, those kinds of forums where employees can feed in improvements and ways of doing things that will be better, mm-hmm. maybe they're worth listening to. But instead we go, let's give them an AI assistant and it'll be fine. This is the thing, though they think AI is going to fix everything, which is automate. But again, you're not, if you're only automating the process, not thinking about the people behind the process, you're kind of missing a huge part of the puzzle. So. What, what the process is, you know, I mean, we, we constantly sort of say, you know, start with why. Yeah. What, why are you doing this? And then mm-hmm. it's the how and the what. And yep. then it's doing it, and then it's doing it better forever. And that's, that's it. That's the process. But yeah, hey ho, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very pithy line for a lot of work but it's worthwhile work, you know, especially if you want to build some competitive differentiation with your organisational strength. But yeah, it was interesting and just slightly disappointing really to uh, to, to read. We're, we're big believers in hybrid working and guys have been, in fact, there's a colleague in today, it's the first time he's come in uh, yeah. since, since the beginning of the pandemic. He's been yeah. today as a dry run because he figured it'd be a quiet day, he just wanted to get used to the office and stuff. And yeah, that's great, right? But that... Um, that storyline is much less traumatic than poor Matt Damon's in Contagion, you know. But but the, the reality is that is, that is real life for seven billion people around the planet. Is that slow readjustment? That mm-hmm. college has been productive throughout the uh, throughout the pandemic. He's been a rock star, but it's mm-hmm. his first day back in. So that that I think is much more realistic than. It, it, it was a disappointing survey. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think what's really scary off the back of it is I think some people's solution to that is fine. OK, you know, again, we're in a very fortunate position that ECS does trust us to get mm. on with our jobs. And we have that hybrid model built in. But I read a report, um, report, read a story a couple of weeks ago now. And it was a, um, oh, my goodness, what they called. It was agents in a contact center. And they've been given 24-7 surveillance or where basically whenever they were on calls, their cameras set up within their computers basically monitored their work and like how productive they were on their screens. And I just think, thank goodness that like not everyone is going down that route because it seems almost, again, proven that everyone's busy all the time. It seems to be like stroking an ego that perhaps needs to disappear from this. It's, it's not about that. It's about empowering your people to do the jobs that you've employed them and trusted them to do. Yeah. And organisationally, that kind of stuff's just, um, I mean, this will sound a little unfair, but it is just verging on vindictive. I mean, if you're in a, if you're in a call centre environment, there are more than enough metrics that have been used for years, decades, uh, to measure agent performance in terms of length of call, calls handled, calls abandoned, those yep. metrics are effectively the outcomes you care about. Sticking mm-hmm. a camera over someone's shoulder so you can see that they're looking at their screen the entire time is just awful. Yeah, um, it's big brothers watching. I don't, I don't need 1984. We're in 2021. Let's like yeah. shift the narrative. Indeed. Um, yeah. Anyway, so starting with <laughs> a happy one. That was a sad one. <laughs> We're going back up again. We are going back up, though. Yeah, happy number yeah. three. Uh, the UN-backed Race to Zero campaign has announced that 40% of the world's major IT companies by revenue have signed up, 
commission to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050 at the latest. Uh, Race to Zero is an international alliance of organizations, businesses, investors, cities and universities all committed to mobilizing credible climate action to half global emissions by 2030 and achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Uh, it's the largest ever coalition committed to achieving net zero carbon emissions uh, with involvement for actors in 120 countries. Um, and collectively, the actors who have signed up cover nearly 25% of global CO2 emissions and over 50% of GDPR. GDPR? GDP, sorry. Um, Gross domestic yeah. product. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. So it's good. It's, it is great. And it is what we want to be seeing. But like 2050 seems like way too far away. Like why are you not looking earlier i agree i agree uh well because that was the compromise position there were there were there were two countries that didn't sign up to uh, the paris accords weren't there so one was the us and one was nicaragua and the reason nicaragua didn't sign up was because they thought it wasn't fast enough so, wow. <laughs> so you know donald trump was left on his own dropping out of it um you know nicaragua has gone further yeah. um what what i like and um, you know, I'm the first person to go out bashing the big four tech companies. <laughs> but um, what I kind of like about this, um, and you you won't have any empathy for this really, Ellie, about competition, but I like the fact that it's being treated as a race. So AWS are aiming to be fully renewable by 24, sorry, 2025, yep. but carbon neutral by 2040. Apple are aiming to be carbon neutral by 2030. And I like that race element if if we can say actually it's race so 2050 is kind of like the if you're past 2050 it's equivalent to doing the london marathon in seven hours you get a dnf <laughs> didn't, didn't finish but it's who can get there first you get a pat on the back by that point but you might yeah. get crazy yeah yeah maybe a medal if someone's still hanging around maybe but, yeah. um but the you know the idea that it is being treated as a race and i want i want these guys to race because like you say 2050 way too far away needs to be now yeah absolutely um, so, yeah, so really, really interesting to see them going hard at that. And our, our ultimate parent company, Hitachi, you know, um, it's really refreshing to work for a company that really takes stewardship seriously. Um, their investment in this space is huge, where they see their, you know, over their 110 years, they've they've really had that view of longevity and this is, this is something we've got to live in and bring better societal change. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they're responsible primary partner for COP26 they're really pushing this stuff on I would like to see them go quicker than 2050 for that carbon neutrality and I would yeah. like to see these companies go further I think episodes ago we spoke about the weirdest of all weird companies I think Velux Windows who have decided to be carbon neutral for the life of their company so going all the way back to when they were founded there then they're, they're aiming to be neutral for that which means that they have to be have a positive impact on yep. their carbon footprint really substantially from now going forward. And they're aiming to achieve that by 2025. Hmm. With companies like Amazon, Google, Apple, can you wipe out your entire carbon footprint that you've ever left? Yeah. That would be truly powerful because that would start to offset some of the non-actors in this space because there are people who are not going to sign up to this. You know, there's going to be a whole bunch of coal mining states in the deep south of the US that are not going to play. Australia famously bad in this space someone needs to offset that while we work on them and I would yeah. like to see us as a country companies like that going to be carbon neutral for the life of their products yeah. that would be interesting to start too but fingers crossed it's definitely a good step in the right direction though. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, as you mentioned, we, what, we're missing 75% of the global CO2 emissions uh, parties. So there is a lot of work that needs to be done and anything that we can be doing to kind of push that forward. And as you said, not just focus on the future of the company, but also look at what you did before and the impact you've had so far since the, the beginning of your company is equally as important. I mean, we as individuals have been doing a lot. You know, I mean, it's, it's very easy to be sniffy about it, but, you know, I know pensioners who are religious about recycling, about their carbon footprint, what they do. You know, it's it, it's easy to make it a thing about, is it, you know, I don't know, baby boomers versus Gen Z and the millennials with us, people like me who are Gen X just stood there going, whatever. But, <laughs> but the point is, though, really, that's just all a sideshow. It is about the companies. Um, that they, they contribute the vast amount of carbon footprint and watching them really start to take it seriously is good yeah it's 20 30 years too late they need to go quicker let's let's push them this is the bare minimum but it's good that they're doing the bare minimum absolutely i think we are in agreement there this is good Mm. um number four any attempt to regulate artificial intelligence must not rely solely on technical measures to mitigate potential harms and it should instead move to address the fundamental power imbalances between those who develop or deploy the technology and those who are subjected to it. This comes from a report commissioned by the European Digital Rights. Um, It's 155 pages long, and it specifically criticizes the EU's uh, technocratic approach to AI regulation, which it said is too narrowly focused on implementing technical bias mitigation measures, otherwise known as de-biasing, which means that it's actually, it can't be as effective as they hope it can be at preventing the full range of AI-related harms. Super interesting. We have touched on this pretty much on every week of this episode um, so far, I think. Perspective I haven't considered, though. So, you know, well done them. Um, yeah. So I think I think the use approach is really interesting. I think I think it's kind of leading the pack. And I think this is a good, it's a good call out and response. Because if, if you remember when we were discussing the, the EU's uh, proposed legalistic approach to this, um, it was a consultation paper. I think this is a great response that will feed into that. Mm. Um, and of course, it like great insights. It's one of those that's really obvious in retrospect. We're always sat there going, it's not about tools and technology alone. It's about people and culture. Yep. And they're really right. You know, the insights from underserved communities, insights from impacted communities, those different perspectives. We talk about this all the time. Absolutely a great point to play in. Hopefully, you know, influences that forthcoming EU legislation to be more effective and more inclusive. Yep. Voices it listens to. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, the, um, one of the quotes out of the, the report, which I thought was really super interesting, was uh, given the rapid and continuous growth of AI, filling the immense accountability gap in how data is collected, stored, shared, and used. It's one of the most urgent human right questions we face. And again, it's that element that it's, AI is all about people. It's about taking data from people, making decisions on behalf of people, which then influence and affect people. And Mm. so when you try and build regulations that completely ignore the people side of it and just focus on the tools and um, algorithms, you know, making sure that they're fair, you're completely missing the 10 steps to four where that data has been collected or how it's been collected and who's collecting it. And as you mentioned, like who's actually in those board meetings, having the conversations about how it's collected, why it's used, I think that it's, you're missing a huge step here. So it's, again, really, really interesting and super important these conversations are happening. As you said, just hitting at every angle we possibly can to make sure that when we are regulating AI, we're not missing anything off the table and we're mm. not 
using something um, so narrow to kind of go, well, that will cover everything. And it's like, it doesn't, it, it should only be applied to the thing that it's, you know, there for. And anything else you then have what it needs to support and make sure that everything else is protected as it should be. Hugely. I mean, I, you know, my, my sort of hobby horse previously has always been around uh, testing, working out by like working the bias out of the algorithms and stuff, making sure the data sets are accurate because, you know, otherwise the algorithm is not going to tell you the truth. It's just going to tell you what you want to hear as you. Right. Confirmation bias. Yeah. As you just keep training yeah. it to do it. Now, you know, as we, as I might have mentioned previously, I'm a white guy in my forties. That kind of stuff tends. You have not mentioned that. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that kind of stuff tends to benefit me, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, there's that first question about is it accurate? Mm-hmm. But this asks that question about yeah, but regardless of whether or not it's accurate, is it harmful? Yes. And and, and that that is an insight that I rarely have to consider because pretty much the whole world is set up for me. You know, it used to be better when people like me had all the power. Now we just have most of it. Yeah. um, But But listen to the feedback as well. Like again, the one that keeps coming back to my mind is that AI technology where it can read a white person's face really well and can help with like profiling, but it can't recognize a black face because it was never tested on black faces so yeah. like you know there, there was a massive limitation to the technology but because it passed the 50 percent mark or whatever low standard it was it was fine because actually the majority of people that it did benefit they, you know what they're fine they're fine so we don't need to worry about the minority groups and actually, look, yeah yeah louise's blog made the same point around micro expressions where you're sort of saying is someone telling the truth or not yeah it really fails with yeah. um you know people from an asian ethnicity mm-hmm. um but yeah, they weren't really looking at those in their cohorts for testing. No, but as you said, confirmation bias in this, especially within this space, is so dangerous. And I think that people need to be prepared to look at those flags and look at any kind of um, consequence of AI and take them very, very seriously. And I don't think in this in this space anything less than 99% accurate is good enough. I genuinely think that if you're missing part of that puzzle, you need to start again. It's like It's got to be that high for you to be able to be passed and used okay. out in society. I agree that that being used to asking the question, is it harmful? is not something people I may are used to asking, but it's the, it's got to be the first question when looking at how these algorithms will work. I think a really good analogy for this is um, um, not the brightest uh, bulb. Um, a, a minister about a decade ago suggested that um, we should use predictive uh, analytics to lock up people with mental illnesses who could be dangerous because they had an accuracy of 76%. To put that in context, if you look at a very accurate test like uh, the HIV test in the UK, uh, yeah. non accurate, uh, you've got a 1 in 10,000 chance of a false report. Um, so that's what, that's 99.999% accurate. Yeah. If you test positive, they automatically retest. Yeah. Because the odds of you actually having HIV in the UK is one in 18,000. So the test is still less accurate. You know, that it's not accurate enough. They have to repeat it twice just to ensure that you've definitely, definitely tested positive for HIV. I think the bar for this, given the potential harms, needs to be in, like you say, the 99th percentile. But I'd like to see it further. You know, you, yeah. you really need, you, you, and if not, if it is at 99%, for people to understand and be clear about what that means. Mm-hmm. You know, because one in a hundred 
incorrect yeah. answers over 68 million people is going to be a lot of people in a bad way. Absolutely, yeah. No, completely agree, completely. Yeah. <laughs> um, number five, hacktivist group Anonymous claims to have stolen a decade's worth of data at domain name registrar Epic, exposing more than 50 million people's personal details online. The firm initially denied reports of the breach. Why do they always do that? Um, but it's now confirmed that an unauthorized intrusion did in fact occur. It's like watching those films where it's like, why are you running? Why are you running? Like there is like, you're surrounded. Why are you running? It kind of feels a little bit like situation. It's like, yeah. it's just such a funny well, mechanism. But, but on the other hand though, if Schadenfreude could be in an article, it was this. I mean, I was just sat there going, oh, what a shame, epic. Yeah. You know, it's a real shame if it, happens to anyone really but the company that decides to host sites like parlor gab name your white ethno nationalist online presence okay. to have those guys get hacked so badly yeah <laughs> like, oh that's a real shame that um also you know interesting point about regulation it wasn't just users of their site um wonderfully pleasant people i'm sure they are but um, it was also loads of people that they uh, that Epic had. Um, so it's worth noting it's Epic with a K, not the yeah. not the games company who made Fortnite. Um, <laughs> but um, you know these guys at Epic with a K had gone and screen scraped pretty much everything they could on who is queries about uh, domain registrations. So there's literally tens, probably hundreds of thousands of people with information from their who is entries to say, I own this domain. Yeah. were also held in that data part that got hacked. Now, you know, under GDPR, they'd have a very interesting discussion about why were you holding that data and had those people consented. Yeah. Um, and you can say it's in public domain because it's sat there against your domain name. But under GDPR, if you need that, you access it from where it is. You don't hold it for yeah. exactly this kind of situation. But yeah, the kinds of uh, the kinds of people who tend to use Epic, you know, it was like you say they denied it, um, and brilliantly in the acknowledgement uh, that it was going on that they sent out to their customers, they still refused to acknowledge that the hack had happened. They said yeah. it allegedly, uh, yeah. even though you can go and get the data, it's out there now. It's it's clearly happened. Yeah, but the other one was the final paragraph was a whole load of thoughts and prayer stuff. And you I were... saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The day of the uh, reckoning is is among us. Um, yeah, yeah. You kind of like it. Look, it doesn't work for gun violence, and it's certainly not going to work for internet security. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, like I say, I you know I I don't like as you know I'm not a big fan. I like you know hackers are still not great people. The black cat ones kind of like some elements of anonymous because they're you know they're, they're quite romantic but nonetheless still naughty and shouldn't happen and criminal but if you're gonna turn someone over i can think of worse targets <laughs> yeah well i think so for um again did a bit of kind of background research into this so last year 2020 um up to 88 percent of uk companies suffered a breach mm. bizarrely uh, that's actually quite low so um, Germany had 92%, France 94%, and Italy 90%. Mm-hmm. Um, every day there were 65,000 attempts to hack SMEs, around 4,500 of which are successful. And yet, even with all this going on, just 31% of UK organisations have done a cyber risk assessment in the last 12 months. Yeah. So this is another reminder from our friendly folk over ECS that if you're considering taking um, your cyber security 
a little bit more seriously, you want to just have a, a check over to make sure that what you have in place is going to do the trick if someone like Anonymous comes along and wants to hack into your data. We really recommend that you, you give that a go. And, you know, if you're already exploring DevOps, then we can be looking into DevSecOps to really build that security in. Um, but even just an assessment to make sure that your security risks are, you've got the the locks and the, the bolts on the door, you know? It, it, it's about building security in from the start. In the same way we advocate that for testing, we advocate that for security, you know, yep. and, it, and it's about an ecosystem of solutions and responses. You know, we we emphasize the culture and the practices, you know, just the, the basics, the sort of hygiene of ensuring that things are patched, not today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I don't think I've ever gone to a large organization, sat down at a Jenkins server and not had to spend the first two hours repatching it all or just rebuilding it from scratch. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they just get out of date very quickly, but it's all the way through that, you know, does it matter if you get breached? Well, it depends what they breached. You know, you have different levels of security. The idea of having a hard out shell and being quite soft within, that's, that's days gone by now. It's about securing each individual object, having those layers, you know, are our kind of sister company, not anymore, I suppose, but Adama, um, who used to be ECS security before uh, they were divested and, yeah. and off on their management buyout. They, they do amazing work and are truly passionate about this kind of stuff in terms of things like security operations centers, that kind of stuff. And they provide it to some of the biggest names out there. But we're more around the DevSecOps, the engineering, things from day one. Um, all those kinds of companies, you, you you need to get involved with people like us, people like Adama, to look at having a full threat response. But you also just need to follow good engineering practices and automate where you can. You know, yeah. we, we don't automate patching because, you know, it's just we automate things for the sake of it. If you automate it, it's much more likely to happen. Yes, no, 100%. If you build in test automation for NFT, including security, then it's much more likely to happen at every step of the process. You know, those, those kinds of things make for a much more secure environment. You can never be 100% secure unless you just lock everyone out and refuse to let people actually use anything. Well, yeah. you know, when, there are, when there are companies out there like HashiCorp with their solutions, there's far fewer excuses, really, to go for that zero-trust environment. And that's the kind of thing that's needed nowadays. But... I'll, I'll cope in my life with Epic, really, never get up to speak. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that's it. That's all the news this week. But we have, do have a couple of shout-outs. Uh, first of which is part two in our AI blog series is now live on the website and has been researched by our very own Louise Fenn. It takes a look at the lack of regulation with AI, something we've obviously discussed a lot here. Uh, trust in the digital age, and that's trust between um, consumers and the people that work at brands, also employees and employers. Um, and we also take a look at lack of empathy in AI-powered machines um, as well as Louise's research, we also had commentary from our resident data expert, Sean Robertson, um, which is always good stuff. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more about the AI landscape, that is a great blog to go explore. Um, another thing to mention as well, we've got the Amazon Connect Immersion Day on Monday, where we'll be joined by Water Plus to look at the turbulence contact centers experienced over the last year and how Enhanced and CX delivered better customer interactions for them specifically and how actually you can be using Amazon Connect to get the same Kind of level of CX that they managed to deliver over that time. I think their NPS score went up quite considerably. Yeah. Uh, but also much improved agent experience. You know, yeah. I mean, they, and um, was it Water Plus that participated in your 
webinar with it was yeah, it yeah, yeah. yeah really interesting insights they were really open and rarely Clayton unbelievable like CTO of water plus some yeah. of the insights he went into about his journey he like got dropped into water plus before, like after the pandemic has started mm. so he literally went in like oh, okay right there's a problem we need to now you know sort out and he yeah. stripped it all the way back and just started again and like put the customer at the center of their new solution and it was incredible well those things tend to be quite self-selecting in that people only really talk about stuff that was successful and obviously that was successful but he yeah. was very open about some of the missteps and mistakes they made along the way and i, I think that should hearten a lot of people it's, it's worth having a listen to the webinar it'll certainly be worth it interest in the immersion there. yeah completely agree um, we're also really excited to announce that next week is the devops world 2021 by cloudbees um it runs from the 28th to the 30th of september and it's a chance to get inspired by experts and peers within the continuous delivery space you'll gain the tools you need to shape the future of software delivery at an organization um at your organization and doing it at scale so it's um a lot about is also about looking at the open source tools but also how you can kind of um evolve onto more what they call they call them enterprise level um, tools within mm. the Cloudbees ecosystem and actually learn what extra things you can get from that. But I had an interesting chat with the Cloudbees guys yesterday and they were saying that um, 80% of Jenkins open source tools is still, that R&D still comes from Cloudbees themselves. So you're not missing out on like the good stuff at the open source level. Yeah. There's just, if that's what they're doing at that level, imagine what you're going to be getting if you look, start looking at the enterprise. Well, stuff. also... Going back to our earlier point about me spending a rook of my life actually getting Jenkins servers up today. Yep. You use Cloudbeat, you can actually set up a patching schedule. Wouldn't there that be crazy? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's I love the way our office has become like a little partner ecosystem as well. Like yeah. we had we had Aqua in yesterday and Cloudbees were in. I think a terrible sorry, a Hashigore guy was in. Um, and it's like you've just you know, we've we've ended up secretly becoming a hub. <laughs> it's really nice um and I've a secret heard... we've just revealed to millions of people listening to our podcast <laughs> <laughs> well you know i mean you've got to be an ecs partner to come join us in the office and stuff but is... I, I think that move is you know where we've rethought and thought about what hybrid working is for us and collaboration actually going well why limit that just to us why not have some of our partners in at the same time and be using the space with them and it's really made for some interesting collaborative conversations that we probably weren't as on the front foot about pre-pandemic, to be honest. So, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and again, it's just making sure that our clients have the right solutions for them. And if we've got that part of the ecosystem, we can tap into it. It's getting that solution in as quick as possible um, mm. with, the, with the partners that we have. Mm. Um, if that's not enough in terms of events next week, make sure to register for our free DevOps Playground on the 30th of September, which is next Thursday. Um, we'll be taking you through containers and teaching you all about Docker and Podman. So we know that Docker is obviously um, becoming less widely used, um, perhaps, than its heyday. And so we're just going to be looking through different container systems that you can be using um, and how to migrate you over. So they'll be hands-on for both. Yes. Made me sad, though, because I, I really, really, really wanted it to be our first in-person. Yeah. That's going to yeah. be maybe next month. Maybe next month. We are working desperately hard on it, though. And I know the team, I keep catching up with them. And they want to be able to get it back in a position where it's in person, in the office, pizzas. You come talk to us. All the good stuff it was before, but also have it live streamed again as well. So people can either choose and then come virtually or they can come in person. Mm. There we go. But we will release more information as we know more. 
um, about kind of that in-person event. But for now, virtual YouTube next Thursday, Devil's Playground containers. I think that's all the, the highlights of that. Thank you so much for listening. That is um, us wrapped up now. We hope you have a great weekend and we look forward to catching up with you next week with more tech news. Definitely. Take care. Cheerio. Bye.